I invite you to come with me to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 7. When I was deciding this time what to preach and where to preach from, in New Horizons, our adult Bible fellowship, we've been studying in the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, that goes through Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. Of course, there weren't chapter divisions like we've often said. And in studying for week by week, and we're only so far in the Beatitudes, reading ahead, keep coming to the conclusion of the sermon. It's really very striking to me to read and to reread and to keep thinking about how Jesus brought his own sermon on the mount to its conclusion. And so I just wanted to go through that together today because Jesus gives us a series of key contrasts of either ors, of saying there are two but only two kinds of whatever it might be. And so we see at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that there are two but ultimately only two different ways to live. There are two but ultimately only two kinds of prophets, those who speak for God and tell us what God is like and how we should live in relationship to him. There are two different kinds of disciples, of those in the habit of Jesus, calling Jesus Lord, and we're either one or the other. And there are two kinds of builders, that is, every one of us builds a life. And there are only ultimately two kinds of builders. And in every case, it's a matter of one or the other, either or, which we in our day and our time, we don't really like contrast. We don't really like an either or choice. We go whenever we can for a both and, but Jesus insists in these key ways, we're either one or the other. So first of all, in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13, we'll see there are only ultimately two ways to live. The narrow way, walking the narrow way, or the broad road. Jesus says that. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. There are ultimately only two ways to live, two roads of life to travel. The narrow road that begins at the narrow gate, the broad road, the narrow road that leads to life, or the broad road, the only other alternative that leads to destruction. Now, I think it's very easy for us to get confused and unbiblical at this point. We talk naturally as if there are many, many other ways to live other than the right and narrow way of Christianity. But if you think about it as Jesus teaches, there are for every human being only ultimately two choices as to how to live. As Jesus puts it throughout the Sermon on the Mount, a person either lives their life in devotion to God, expressed in committed, committed um, consistent obedience to his will, to his word, and for his glory, that's the one road, 
or the broad road to live for self and sin. You see, the broad road has many lanes, but it is really still just one road, and it, lead, it leads, all of its lanes lead to the same destination, destruction. I think we tend to think, well, there are certain, certainly certain ways of living, certain lifestyles that are obviously very scandalous and offensive to God, even by using the word lifestyles, I'm guessing maybe your minds might be thinking about certain ways of living defined by sexual preferences and practices and identities that are surely lead to lead to God's punishing judgment. And sadly and tragically, that's true. But what I want us to realize is that any way of living, any lifestyle that's not authentically devoted to trusting and obeying and living for the glory of God, even ways of life that are a lot closer to our own, that seem sort of respectable, but if they're not devoted to God and to his glory, they're just a different lane on the same broad road that leads to destruction. Surely the Pharisees and the Sadducees prove that. You can be exceeding religious, And you can be involved in all kinds of ministry and yet be alienated from God in rebellion against him. That was Paul's own story told in his testimony in Philippians chapter 3. He was exceedingly religious before he came to Christ and went through the narrow gate and started down the narrow road. And so every one of us, we need to realize there's only one road that's the right road. Every other way of living, every other lifestyle is one of the different lanes that are on the broad road that still leads to destruction. So that's the first either or. And I hope they have kind of a gathering momentum as we think about them together today. Because secondly, the Lord Jesus says that there are ultimately only two kinds of prophets Prophet here means those who speak for God, those who say, well, this is what God is like, and this is how you engage with him, this is how you relate to him. There are only either the true prophets who speak God's true word, the words of the faithful prophets, the words of the apostles, or I don't care what else the spokesman for God is saying, it's false. And there are all kinds of different religions, and there are all kinds of spiritualities. But Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. Why? Because the prophets you listen to, the sources you go to for finding out about God, are going to ultimately lead to which road you end up traveling, and which eternal destiny you end up experiencing. Watch out. For false prophets. There are true ones and there are false ones. We don't have more time to develop this theme, but I just wanted to see that that's another either or contrast that Jesus gives us. But the next one that the Lord gives to us goes even further and is in many ways, I think, even more compelling. For next, he explains that there are ultimately two different kinds of disciples. 
true and false disciples. And I say disciples again because he's talking about those who are in the habit of calling him Lord. He says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, or as one paraphrase puts it, not everyone who keeps calling me Lord, not everyone in the habit of calling me Lord, Jesus says, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, they'll call him that even on this judgment day. Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? These are people with dramatically successful religious ministries, apparently even blessed by God, used by God, empowered by God. Judas could do all the miracles that the other apostles could do. And yet they are destined for this terrible shock on Judgment Day when the one who they've been in the habit of calling Lord and ministering in his name tells them plainly, I never knew you. Go away from me. How could that be? Why are they being excluded and sent away after being described as being so notably religious and even as being effective and powerful ministry in Jesus' name? It's because of how they actually lived, or more precisely, failed to live. They did not do the will of the Father who is in heaven. In fact, Jesus calls them evildoers. So, hear me. We've got to have a category for those who are exceeding religious, very much involved in ministry, and in the habit of kind of saying the right things, including in routinely referring to Jesus as Lord, calling him Lord. You see, as professing Christians, we are often in all kinds of settings where we do that, where we call Jesus Lord. We do it a lot when we're singing. We sing about he's Lord. We sing about he's king. We call him Lord. We do it when we pray in public, in private. We call him Lord when we do Bible study together. We keep calling him Lord. We do it in conversations with one another. We do it, we call Jesus Lord in meetings and ministry planning and annual reports. We who preach and teach call him Lord a lot. But Jesus, as Luke records it, in chapter 6, 46 says, why do you keep calling me Lord and do not do what I say? So what's the criteria again? What does it come down to again? What marks a true disciple from a counterfeit one? Not religiousness, not ministry involvement, 
Not even an apparent devotion that keeps saying, Lord, Lord, Lord. The characteristic is doing the will of my Father who is in heaven. Or, as Jesus says, doing what I say. Calling him Lord and truly living like he's Lord, doing what he says and obeying the will of the Father in heaven, they're not the same thing. And it's desperately important that we realize the difference. So to help us do that, in the final contrast, we see that the Lord brings these truths home with sobering force. He applies all he's been teaching and saying with an unmistakable urgency, summing up the stark and crucial either-or alternatives he's been presenting all along. For he teaches us next that ultimately there are only two ways to build your life. There are only two ways to be a human being. And again, that's so countercultural. We like just to think, you know, I'll be me or you be you or, you know, I don't know. And it's just so self, self, self-defined. And to have Jesus himself saying ultimately, there are only two ways for you to be a human being. Only two ways for you to build a life. And he says it this way. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. And puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it didn't fall because it had a foundation on the rock. That's one kind of person. That's one kind of human being. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, they may like to be around them, They may like doing Bible studies. They may like theology. Some people love to argue about theology. They love engaging with God's word. But do they do them? They do not put them into practice. It's like a foolish man who's built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell with a great crash. There are only two ways to live again. Now, see what the crucial difference is, the critical either-or contrast between these two groups. It's not that one hears the words of Jesus and the others don't. It's that one hears and does them, and the others hear like we're hearing this morning, but don't do them. Don't put them into practice. Jesus' half-brother James, who was the apostle, would later write about this, wouldn't he? Be doers of the word, not hearers only. And what's the next? Deceiving yourselves. It's the same fatal flaw of those just described who for all their apparent religiosity calling Jesus Lord, don't actually do what he commands. Now consider this. Jesus' concluding parable 
is both a promise and a warning. But I want us to see and feel the promise part too. For the first group of people, the compelling promise is this, and it's addressed to us today too. If you as a human being make it your habit, once you've heard the words of Jesus, to actually do them and put them into practice, then no matter what storms of life you face, and you face them too, just like the other group, no matter what storms of life you face, Jesus says, your life will not come to a crashing, collapsing fall. It might get beat up. Your house might get banged around. But it will not fall because it's built on the foundation of God's words. It's built on the truth, the reality of the way things really are in a God-created world. And you know, I've watched it, and if you think about it, you've seen it too. People, all kinds of people, some very simple in different ways. I've often mentioned the family, the Baldwins, who've had such an impact on my life from the very beginning of my Christian life. And Mrs. Baldwin, Martha Baldwin, turned 90 years old just the other day. And she was surrounded by loved ones. And she has lived a life of quiet faithfulness and fruitfulness. And she's had illness. And she's had family sorrows. And she's had financial difficulties. But she has not collapsed. Because she has built her life. And she lives still with confidence in God with all the joys and the blessings of salvation, knowing that our sins are forgiven, knowing that we have a Father who loves us and is always working for our good. She has known these words of God and she has put them into practice. That's our promise. That's God's promise to everyone who lives this kind of life. But it's not only for this life. It relates to the life to come. When Jesus says, in this contrast, it did not fall, it corresponds to what he said a minute ago about entering into life. And it corresponds to what he said in the first contrast about entering into the kingdom of heaven. That's the glorious outcome for those who really do live this way. Jesus is teaching, promising in fact, that those who build their lives on the foundation of his words, his teachings, will not only enjoy the blessings of salvation in this life, he's also promising that those who've lived by putting his words into practice will enjoy all the amazing, perfect, and irreversible blessings of the life to come in the kingdom of God. Beginning with that glorious celebratory feast where he, the Lord Jesus, will drink again with his true disciples the cup of thanksgiving, which he last time drank with his disciples that night when he instituted the Lord's Supper. But he said, I will not drink again of this cup until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Do you want to be at that feast? Do you 
One of the most dreadful things that ever occurs to me, truly, is to imagine on Judgment Day coming into the presence of the one who I've made a habit of calling Lord and hearing, I never knew you away from me. Those who have made it a habit of living by the words of Jesus they hear will never ever hear that. They'll hear, welcome to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, I realize when we talk about doing the Father's will and doing Jesus' words, that some begin to be nervous that we're talking about salvation by works. That misunderstanding has been killing us for a long time. Remember, what Jesus says was, doing the will of the Father who is in heaven. Well, let me tell you, the will of the Father who is in heaven begins with your repenting of sin and coming to the cross and trusting in Christ and Christ alone and what he did for you to give you salvation as a free gift. That's where doing the will of the Father who is in heaven begins. That's not works, but it's the beauty of knowing it's not only doing the beginning, but it's continuing to do the will of the Father who is in heaven so that we go on to live the good works for which that were prepared beforehand, Ephesians 2.10, so that we go on living this new kind of life. What kind of life? A life that habitually puts into practice the teachings of Jesus. That's what it means to do the will of the Father who is in heaven. And then as a Christian, think about how this works out more specifically. And I can only sketch it out and can't really pause even for examples. But to put his words into practice when it comes to teaching words means to believe them. What the words of Jesus say about what a human being is or what sexuality is, the disciple of Jesus hears those words and puts them into practice by believing them, believing them to be true. This is the way things are. To put his words of promise into practice is to trust them. To put his words of warning into practice is what? To heed them, to take them seriously. To put his words of reproof into practice it's to be corrected by them. You know, that's a major part of the Christian life, to be reproved and corrected. According to Proverbs, according to time and again in Paul's letters, including when he talks about what the word, the inspired word is for, it's for teaching, for reproof, for correction. And yet, again, in the spirit of this age, we Christians do not like to be reproved. You reprove me, you're out one way or another. We do not like to be corrected. But that is so soul-destroying. It's so counter to what Jesus teaches echoing the entire Bible. And by the way, Jesus in his own teaching and example endorsed the entire Bible the way he quoted and responded to the Old Testament, and then he said, I'll send the Spirit, and essentially he'll give you the New Testament. So when we're talking about these words of mine, of Jesus, that we're responding to, we're basically talking about our entire Bible. That's why Tozer said it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. Which will it be then for you? 
entering into that narrow road of being a true disciple of Jesus who doesn't just call him Lord, but who lives like he is, habitually doing the will of the Father in heaven by trusting Jesus as Savior and then following him as Lord by habitually putting his words into practice. When you hear them, that's the right way on the right road that leads to the right destination. And there are in this room those in that group. And I want to tell you, the only other group to be in are those who are on the wrong road, not doing the words of Jesus, even if they're around them not really living under his lordship, even if they call him that. And that's the road that leads to destruction. What will you do with the words of Jesus that you've heard even today, even this morning? That's a great place to start. You know, in a way, we're used to, in a way, in certain traditions, that when it's an end of a sermon, and I was thinking today, how am I going to end this sermon? And some people understandably have kind of a respect and a regard for some gesture of decision like walking an aisle. And I understand that. It's not really directly from the Bible. It didn't start till around the 1800s. But you know what the right response to a sermon like this is? Put into practice the words of Jesus that you're hearing this morning. If you've never trusted Christ as Savior and Lord for the first time, do that. And if you need pastors or a Christian friend to help you how to do that, come to us and meet with us and talk with us. Or if you need some area of your life where you've cordoned it off from the Lordship of Christ, you need to break that barrier down and submit that to Christ too. The best application of this sermon will be what happens after it's done. That's really always the best application of a sermon. Let me encourage you to do this. Sometime this Lord's Day, read through the entire Sermon on the Mount. See all that Jesus spoke about, all that Jesus addressed. It's extraordinary, really. All the different topics and themes. And then come to this concluding part in Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. Jesus' conclusion is so abrupt and jarring. I encourage you to do that today. I encourage you to do that maybe, it's only three chapters, every day this week. And then, I really think it could be a helpful guide. You know, I'm going to use Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27, for the next few months at least, every time I hear the words of Jesus. So I'll be very much encouraged to do them, put them into practice. It's a beautiful promise and invitation to a life that will never ultimately be destroyed. But it's a warning too. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the storms came, the rains came, the flooding rains, and the winds blew and beat against that house. But it didn't fall because it had its foundation on rock. 
But everyone, including everyone today, who hears these words of mine, Jesus says, but doesn't do them. They're like a foolish man. And the storms are going to come, and the collapse may not happen right away, although a lot of times there are cracks that begin to show. But eventually, at least on Judgment Day, the house fell with a great crash. Let's pray. Father, I pray because Jesus himself is the one who taught these things, that we will listen to his either-ors, that we will give up kind of the worldly spirit that never wants to make a really decisive decision, that never really realizes that saying yes to this means saying no to that, and that calling Jesus Lord applies to and relates to every single aspect of our lives. But Lord, I also pray that people will not hear this message just as a warning, but, just, but also as an invitation. They can be sure, whatever their life is today, that if they'll repent and put their faith in Christ and begin to follow him, that ultimately... They won't experience that great and terrible crash, that final and irreversible destruction. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. While I was doing the preparation for this also, I'm like, I don't know what song to recommend to Corb to end this message. And uh, so, you know, I, I really, I, I know a fair range of songs, both kind of old and new, and I'm just not really sure. And then one occurred to me, and it was from Bible camp days when I was on the gospel team from Cedarville, and we teach it to the kids at camp. I'm not going to teach it to you because it's not fair. You know, you're just not hearing it. So just bear with me. It'll be simple, but I want it to be simple. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Doing exactly what the Lord commands Doing it faithfully, O-B-E-D-I-E-N-C-E. Obedience is the only real way to show that you believe.